You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. This is Matthew 15, 29 through 39. Jesus went out from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples and said to him, I have, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed a great crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do we have? Then they said, Seven, with a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all, were, they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Yeah. All right. Well, I have um, some things to give away, and I, uh, I gave a challenge to the children of our church uh, to see if they might be able over, there's no time limit on this, but if they might be able to memorize the books of the Bible in order, um, just kind of putting it out there. Uh, as seen it as important to understand our Bibles is to know where, you know, things are located, right? So kind of the gateway. Uh, and I did this last week, and within days, two kids came to me, and they already had it done, which I find super impressive. So their reward is they got to choose a gift card to Chick-fil-A or Pizza Hut, having their own chicken nugs or pizza. They both chose... Uh, Chick-fil-A. So, Garcia's, you're representing Annie. You can come on up. And Natalie, I think is right there. Natalie, come on up. These two kids, James not, well, you know, representing Annie. Annie, if you're watching, good job. But these two kids memorize the books of the Bible. Give it up for them. Good job. Well done. Children watching are present. The challenge is still there. The reward is still there. Uh, see if you can memorize the books of the Bible. And adults, I turn to you now, and I wonder how many of you could do it. And if you can, I have a prize for you. I have some books here. Anyone, anyone dare enough to go for it? Oh, man, put you on the spot. <laughs> Work your way through the minor prophets. All right, that's okay. I have two books here. Uh, one, a gospel primer. Would anyone like that? A gospel primer. First hand that I see. Oh, 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 oh. No, Scott, I'm choosing you. Good, good job. Way to raise your hand. 
And we have some college students here. You guys want some free stuff. There you go, John. Side by Side by Ed Welch. Great book. Um, get to know uh, Ed Welch, a great author. Uh, but so glad to be here with you this morning. My name is James, um, and I just want to make sure. Am I okay with the camera online? Okay, good. Um, but I work with youth and kids, and it's a joy to continue our time in Matthew uh, together. So um, as I was getting ready to prepare this morning, I, I had this, this uh, realization. And I don't know if you've ever had this realization as well. Uh, but sometimes when you're talking with a friend, um, like sometimes you suddenly realize, like, shoot, did I already tell this story to this person, like, just last week or relatively soon? Um, this happens all the time to me outside with our neighbors. Like, did I already share how my fantasy football team just, like, stinks? Have I already relayed my, like, sorrow of that? Or have I already shared, like, that funny story that one of our kids did? Or I imagine maybe all of us, most of us, maybe we have that slightly older family member that when we go home for the holidays is perhaps maybe sharing that same story that we've heard a few times. And so it is as we roll into this last portion of Matthew, of Matthew chapter 15, we, we kind of encounter a similar thing. Because Matthew begins recounting this incredible story of Jesus feeding a massive crowd. And it would seem that Matthew is actually repeating a story that he's already told. Turn back with me, if you have your Bible, to Matthew chapter 14. And for me, I don't even have to turn back. It's on the same page. But in Matthew 14 and verse 13, let your eyes fall on it. And it's a familiar passage, one of the most familiar passages, the feeding of the 5,000. And so only, I'm not a mathematician, I could be wrong here, but I think there's 46 verses that separate these two feeding miracles. And they're incredibly similar. Look, look, look at it. It's, they're both happen. We just heard the one. They're both in desolate places. They both have these massive crowds that both says that Jesus has compassion, that people are hungry, and the crowds are fed on the same thing, a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and there's even leftover food, right? Incredibly similar, and at quick glance, we might think, Matthew, hey, dude, you're a little confused, that you, you failed to remember that you've already shared this incredible story. We get it. Jesus did this really incredible thing. And so in the office this week, I jokingly uh, told Zach, I said, well, since you already um, preached this back in the summer, no one probably remembers what was said, you know, it's, it's kind of the same story, I'm just going to copy-paste your sermon and just like put 5,000, or put 4,000 instead of 5,000 and call it good right? But the more I studied it, I don't think Matthew is confused. I think Matthew is telling two different massive feedings. That Jesus himself, if next week we'll see this in chapter 16, verses 9 and 10, he actually sees these as two separate feedings, as two different occurrences. And so there's different feedings here, but it makes us ask the question of like, why the back-to-back repetitive telling of these two similar miracles? That's a great question. I'll sit down and, and listen, see what you say. But repetition, repetition is the mother of learning. Repetition is the mother of learning. 
If we remember in the Old Testament, right, when God brought the, the Israelites out of Egypt, they're wandering without food, and what did God do? Every day from heaven drops down manna, food, for the people. And fast forward 600 years from then uh, to 2 Kings 4, a time of a famine, and a man comes to the prophet Elisha with a small quantity of bread, and there's 100, 100, 100 hungry men, and Elisha says, give it to the men. And even as the man wonders how little is going to feed so many, Elisha, uh, the man does, as, as Elisha says, and miraculously God multiplies the bread and all those hungry men eat. And of course, in that story, there's leftovers too. So as we, we come into Matthew 15, our text today, it's not Matthew simply retelling a story of Matthew 14. It's not Matthew simply retelling the story of 2 Kings 4. It's not Matthew simply retelling the story of the Exodus. It's Matthew retelling again of God's continual provision of humankind throughout all history. You see, in this feeding of the 4,000 that we just heard, it's, it's not that Jesus provides a new kind of miracle, and neither does he intend to. What Jesus intends to do for this 4,000 is exactly the same thing he's already been doing throughout all history. And he's tying this singular event to the whole of Scripture, that as we read our Bibles, it screams to us that God cares, that God cares for you. And that God provides for you. God cares and God provides. When we read our Bibles, we can't necessarily argue against that, can we? It's abundantly clear. But when we begin thinking about applying that truth to our lives, I wonder if we believe it. Do you believe that God cares for you? I find it super easy to believe that God cares for others, but me, I, I know myself. I, I know I'm not always all that lovable. Yet, I do want to be loved. I do want to be cared for. I want to be provided for. That's just what it is to be a human being, right? But because we're human beings, we're also very forgetful. And we often forget that Jesus is the only one who can love and care and provide for us in a fully satisfying way. And so like the disciples that we'll see in this story, we can stand with Jesus, even for years, and still forget Jesus all at the same time. And so it's repetitive passages like we have this morning that in a sense can wipe away the grime that may be on our, our windshields to let the, sh the sun shine once more in so that we can see the beauty and awe and wonder of Jesus. Let's pray as we get going. Father, we do confess our need for you in this moment, to wipe away whatever grime prevents us from seeing the beauty of who you are. So Lord, by the power of your spirit and your word, put us to life, we pray. Reveal yourself again, afresh, anew, in this text. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to consider this passage in three very simple, uh, digestible um, parts. First, the compassion of Jesus, 
Second, the provision of Jesus. And then thirdly, the satisfaction of Jesus. All right, so you can track with me the compassion, the provision, and the satisfaction. Let's roll. The compassion of Jesus, we see it there in verse, well, we see it there in verses 29 through 31, right? Jesus is healing all those that are coming to him. And then in 32, Jesus calls to uh, him his disciples. And actually, we have Jesus' words, which is a little unique here. It's not a narrative telling us how Jesus feels, but Jesus himself is saying this to his disciples. He says in verse 32, I have compassion on the crowds. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowds. And this is striking because of who's in the crowd. And, and last week, if we remember, if, you're, if, you're, if your eyes go back to verse 21, we see that Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon, which we know is, is Gentile or non-Jewish land. And we see in verse 29 that he goes from there to beside the Sea of Galilee. And at that time, the, the eastern side of the sea would have been um, a Jewish, I mean, sorry, the western side of the sea would have been a Jewish land. And the eastern side would have been Gentile land. And, and, and Matthew doesn't tell us where Jesus goes, does he? But Mark does. The gospel writer Mark in Mark 7, the parallel account to what we have here, it's very similar. He tells us that at this time, Jesus enters the region of Decapolis, which is on the eastern side of the sea, meaning Jesus is again, like last week, beyond the Jewish world and into the Gentile territory. So are there Jews present in this massive crowd? Probably, I don't know. But the context of this crowd is entirely significant and very different than the feeding of the 5,000. For by and large, this crowd is not a crowd of like good church-going folks. This is a crowd of idol worshipers and pagans. And they've evidently caught news that Jesus has come to their region and they've gone out to see him. And it's upon these people, these, these unclean, sinful Gentiles whom Jesus has compassion. Compassion. And this, this week, I just looked up, well, what is compassion? The dictionary defines it as this. Compassion as a sympathetic pity and concern. Excuse me. Compassion as a sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. A sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering or misfortune of others. A few summers ago, Emily and I worked at a, actually for a few years, worked at a Bible camp here in town. And one of those summers, surprisingly, maybe to some, I was the camp nurse. Um, <clears throat> small staff. Um, and there were the typical issues that you think of when you think of a children's Bible camp. You know, there was the, uh, my head hurts, I got a headache. You know, kids may think they've sprained their ankle, they, a lot of homesick kids, and so kind of those typical things. But I'll be real honest, what I feared the most that summer as the camp nurse, as responsible for the health and well-being of these children, was the kid that came down with the stomach flu. Blood, it's okay, we can bandage things back together and that's okay, but vomit, I'm not doing that. <laughs> In fact, I'll do just about anything to uninvolve myself when it comes to like dealing with a camper or anybody that comes down with a stomach flu. Like in that moment, like, hey, like I got to run to town. You, could, could you, I got to get that thing. Like you, how about you watch Johnny for a little bit? Like I got to get out of here. But, but fast forward now to the present. 
and, and now being a father, something interesting has happened to me. Over the years, Lucy has had the stomach flu, which we call the bad guys, just a few times, very minimal. But I remember that first time, that, that you know, of course, middle of the night, that distinct sound, the coughing, the, the crying, the wailing, and I remember quickly getting out of bed and, and rushing down to her room. And as I opened the door, you know, like, despite, like, the, 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 this, 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 you know, the this, this smell that's coming out, the, the, the crying, the coughing, you know, like, I'm at the door, but what do I do? What do I do in that moment? Of course, I enter the room. I go and, and, and embrace her and hold her, even throughout the next few episodes, right? That, that's, that's parental compassion, that no, no matter the circumstance, that you'll do what is needed in that moment to care and love for your child, no matter the cost to yourself. See, that, that's compassion, like Webster says, of absolute pity and concern in the suffering of another. But it's one thing to have compassion on your kids, on those whom you love, on those whom you like, but what about compassion on those whom you do not like, on those whom you despise? Insert Jesus. Jesus loves the unlovable. To the unclean, to the sinful, to the undeserving pagan Gentile, Jesus says, I have compassion. And I can hear the disciples in this moment as Jesus is saying this, articulating this. Like the disciples are like, come again, Jesus? Like, are you kidding? Why, why are we having compassion here? Well, Jesus says why in verse 32. I have compassion on the crowd because, here's the why, they have been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send this crowd away hungry lest they faint on the way. Isn't that amazing? That this, this crowd, do they, do they give Jesus something in this moment to, to draw out Jesus' compassion? No. Do, do, they, do they perform for Jesus in some way that, that draws out Jesus' compassion? No. What, what, what does Matthew say the reason is? Because they have now been with me three days. That's it. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They simply remained with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? On one hand, it's convicting. For how hard is it for you and I to remain with Jesus for a few minutes, let alone a few days? Right? Our phone beeps and all of a sudden it's more urgent than Jesus. But these people stuck with Jesus even as their bellies rumbled and their bodies grew weak. But on the other hand, it's incredibly good news. That if the compassion of Jesus extends to this crowd of unclean sinners, then the compassion of Jesus certainly extends to you and I as well. That's good news. Amen? You can shout it through your mass. Amen? Amen? And some of you need to hear this this morning, that our past, no matter what you've done, 
Our past does not need to define us. Let Jesus' compassion define you. Our past does not need to define you. Let Jesus' compassion define you. Pastor Ray Ortland says this, and it's so good. He says, maybe Jesus' compassion is for all kinds of people with all kinds of sin because his love is too great to be limited to what we deserve. You hear that? Uh, Jesus' love, it's too great to be limited to what we deserve. For what do we deserve every time? Hell. But Jesus' compassion is not limited by what we deserve. Jesus freely gives. Had this pagan Gentile crowd earned the compassion of Jesus? No. What about my sick daughter at just a few years old? Had she earned my compassion? I'm not trying to be mean, but no, not really. You see, the compassion of Jesus, it freely steps into the room of our stench and provides for our suffering. Compassion freely accepts all ills and wrongs and says, I got you. I got you. And friends, I just want to ask, do you believe that God's blessings upon your life are directly linked to your obedience or sacrifice? Do you believe God's blessings or lack of blessings in your life are directly linked to your obedience or sacrifice? Many of us need to hear this this morning, that the compassion of Jesus is not linked to your character or conduct. It's linked to his character and conduct. The compassion of Jesus is not linked to our character or conduct. It's linked to Jesus' character and conduct. And until we allow this gospel truth to sink deep into our hearts, we'll never free ourselves of these wrong expectations that we may have set up as we approach faith. Friends, Jesus saw you and I in our stench He saw us in our sin. And the Bible says that God shows his love for us in that while we were what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what makes the gospel so unique. God doesn't save us after we've earned it. God saves us before we've earned it. Do you believe that this morning? Friends, we have a king who doesn't just look at a crowd and and stench and wish that someone else might go do something. But we have a compassionate king who comes towards us, enters our room, rushes towards us in our time of need. That's the compassion of Jesus. Secondly, the provision of Jesus. And after Jesus expresses this compassion, his disciples, they begin to have this dialogue with Jesus right there in verse 33. And the disciples say to Jesus, well, hey, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And this response is a little astounding to our ears, perplexing perhaps, because had they already forgotten a mere 46 verses ago that Jesus can provide for this crowd. And honestly, here it's a smaller crowd. And actually, Jesus is working with more loaves. (laughs) I think all of us just want to scream like right now behind our masks like, idiots! (laughs) Right? But we can't, can we? Because we're just like them. Don't we all tend to forget the past provision of God? 
That even though he may, he has rescued us from our sin, when he's made himself so apparent throughout our life, when we're faced with that new circumstance or fresh crisis or new situation, we wonder, well, God probably can't do it this time. Will God provide as he's done in the past? I, I know God did a miracle in the past, but I wonder, I doubt he could do it in the present. This one's a little bit out there. But here in this desolate place with Jesus standing before them, and having seen the countless miracles of Jesus, the disciples question in this moment, whom can provide? And of all the people who, who heard the word, like the compassionate words of Jesus, of all the people when they heard Jesus speak so compassionately, I would have thought that they would have like smiled at one another like, okay, here we go again. Something great's going to happen. But they question Jesus as just another man with a good idea. You see, they, they, they heard the words of Jesus, but instead of seeing Jesus as one with the power to provide, all they could see was a problem. They, they heard the words of Jesus, but failed to trust Jesus' power and provision. This past week, I, I went to the Monona Walmart right over there off the belt line to pick up a few things. And coming out of that little access road to go back onto Broadway, to go back onto the belt line, there stood at the stop sign, as there often is if you go there, um, a man who was seeking help. He had a sign looking for some money. And as I often do in that situation, as I'm driving up to the stop sign, I quickly like look the other way as if there's nothing to see here on my right side. But as I, as I turned the wheel to go right, to get back onto the belt line, I, I caught sight of the sign that this man held, and it simply said, seeking human kindness. And I immediately felt convicted. Con convicted because I, I know Jesus' words, right, to, to love my neighbor, to, to give a cup of water even to the least of these. I know, I know these things. And yet I, I continued to drive on and, and went on my way. Why? Because, because I drove to that stop sign. As I saw this man momentarily, what I, what I really saw in that moment was a man who I assumed had a long list of problems. Problems which would run a whole lot deeper than my limited schedule and time. Problems that would run a whole lot deeper than my checkbook. Problems that would run a whole lot deeper than my understanding of, of poverty. So, so while I, I saw a man... What I really saw was a man with a sign full of problems. And likewise, when the disciples, when the disciples looked out at this massive crowd, what, what, what they saw was, was a massive problem. No food, desolate place, no solution. Instead of seeing, as Jesus saw, as he looked out at the crowd, a massive crowd with an opportunity to meet a real need. See, the disciples are saying, hey, Jesus, it's great you have compassion to, to feed these people, but there's absolutely no way us 12 are going to be able to get that done. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to realize. That in themselves, they can't provide for this crowd. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, the disciples, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, and a few small fish. 
just throwing the fish in there, right? (laughs) And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. I love Jesus' response here. He asks what they have, and then Jesus provides. Jesus provides the miracle. That's his job. Jesus provides, and as Jesus provides, notice, though, that the disciples have a job, right? That they they take from Jesus this miracle bread, and they begin distributing it to all those who are hungry. You see, Jesus provides, and the disciples distribute. And imagine this this scene, and we're a crowd right here, like this massive crowd of 4,000 people as this bread is being multiplied. I can can imagine like they're sitting down, maybe like, what's happening here? Probably just like this quietness of like, I don't know. And then like as like the bread is being multiplied, just like gasp, like what's going on? And then like from group to group, there's like, there's water spilling everywhere. The musical instruments, David, are safe. There's laughter going from group to group, like it's a miracle, like wait their bread like I cannot believe this children like shouting like hey mom I can't finish my food tonight can I still get dessert like it is a miracle Jesus from like no food and empty stomachs to to full bellies and food left over I'll pick that up Jesus provides but let's pause and remember the context of this crowd pagan Gentiles feasting at a table that the disciples would have said reserved for Jews. We saw this last week that Jesus is now, Jesus is now seating those dogs at their table with their Lord, eating their bread. This was most likely uncomfortable for the disciples. But it's this lesson that Jesus wants the disciples to learn, really, in all of chapter 15, that Jesus is not just bread for the Jews, but he's bread for the Gentiles as well. That the Gentiles have a place within the storyline of Scripture. That the ministry and power of Jesus is not just for the Jews, but for all of humanity, regardless of race or language or gender, God's table is open for you. We learned that last week. Come and eat. Salvation can be yours through faith in Jesus. But as we turn into this passage this week, we also see a second lesson that Jesus wants his disciples to catch on to. That as we come to eat, we also serve. We do not serve to eat, but we eat to serve. That as we eat, we go and take what he's already provided to those who need it. You see, when I saw that man holding the sign, although I heard and knew the words of Jesus to love, all I saw was a problem. A problem because I thought I should be able to solve it in some way out of my own human efforts. But that's not my job. Jesus provides and I distribute. See, there's no miracle this world needs that Jesus won't provide in himself. Jesus simply asks us to trust him enough to take what he's provided to those who need it. So what do we hear when Jesus speaks to us? Do we we hear his promises and respond accordingly? 
or are we deafened by the problems and obstacles in front of us? See, for me, I was deafened by my own perceived notions of the problems of this man, by my lack of understanding of how best to help. And it's funny because the Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. And I fully understand there's no one size fits all and how God may lead each one of us and how to address an, a person who's, who's seeking money. But what I do know for certain is that my deliberate like turning away as if this person doesn't even exist, it revealed a heart of unbelief of Jesus' power and provision. And for that, I had to repent. Jesus provides and I distribute All too often, we tend to treat Jesus as if he may have good ideas, but no power to deliver. A.W. Tozer says it so well. He says, unbelief says this, some other time, but not now. Some other place, but not here. Some other people, but not us. Faith says, anything he did anywhere else, he will do here. Anything he did any other time, he's willing to do now. Anything he ever did for other people, he's willing to do for us. Friends, seven loaves and a few fish shouldn't feed 4,000 people. There's no scientific evidence or explanation for that. But that's what makes God God and us not. What else does Jesus need to prove before you trust him? And as you think on your own life, who might Jesus be nudging you to distribute the good news of his provision. Maybe it's a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, a family member. It's not always going to be comfortable. Perhaps it's that pagan Gentile whom you despise. But remember the compassion of Jesus, how he came into the stench of your own life and has now given you the opportunity to distribute that same provision to others. He's asking you, will you join him? Friends, we have a king who doesn't just look at the crowd and their stench wishing someone else might do something. Rather, we have a compassionate king who rushes towards us and provides a feast in a desolate place. Compassion of Jesus, provision of Jesus, and lastly, the satisfaction of Jesus. I love verse verse 37. Verse 37. And they, the crowd, all ate and were satisfied. The provision of Jesus is just not okay. It's satisfying. He doesn't, and he doesn't just satisfy. He continues. Look, it's more than satisfying. Verse 37, And they, the disciples, took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over these weren't to-go boxes. These were huge backs, ba- baskets. They're, it's actually the same word used in, in Acts 9 to describe the kind of basket Paul was, was brought or put into over the wall. So these are, these are man-sized baskets, seven man-sized baskets left over. You see, the resources of Jesus, they're never diminished or exhausted. God's supply exceeds the demand it's a satisfaction that, that spills over just as I spill my cup. In our home, as I leave for work in the morning, there's hardly a day that Lucy doesn't follow me out on our stoop and say, Dad, don't forget, it's Ethel's birthday. And there's a birthday party when you get home. 
Or it's, hey, don't forget, Dad, it's, it's Leroy's birthday, and there's a party. And it goes on and on. She's got a lot of stuffed animals, and there's always a birthday, and there's always a party, and I love it. It is fantastic. And when I get home in the afternoon, of course, I've remembered that Lucy has the cake. It's, it's ready to go. The plate and the silverware are set. The, the other stuff, family members, they're all related, are present. The decorations are there. And all that's missing, of course, naturally, right, is the, is the juice, and we often pretend that the, the cups, I, I brought a cup, Lucy, for, oh, man, I'm clumsy today. We often pretend that these cups are just filled with juice, but as any child, she wants to fill it with the real thing, right? And so she'll ask to be able to go to the sink and fill it up. And in Lucy's mind, to, to fill this cup of juice with water is to go to the very top of the cup, right? Like not a drop more could go in because that is what it, it's completely filled. And in that moment, as she's like, you know, completely filled her cup with water, I'm like, okay, Lucy, that's enough. But that's not a picture of the satisfying provision of Jesus in our lives. Jesus doesn't just take this cup and fill it and say, now, now, now that's, that's enough. Jesus takes this small cup to the depths of the oceans and says, here, you will find my provision for you. For in me, you'll be eternally, abundantly, and mightily satisfied. Friends, it's a cup that's spilling over that when we come to Jesus seeking forgiveness, expecting a clean slate. Jesus does more than that. He gives us his perfect righteousness. That when we come to Jesus for peace, expecting some sort of relief from anxiety, Jesus does more than that. This is scripture. He gives us a peace that passes what? All human understanding. When we come to Jesus for spiritual strength, expecting a pick-me-up, Jesus does more than that. Right? Scripture says he gives us far more abundantly than we all ask or think. You see, when it comes to Jesus, Bible teacher Jared Wilson says it so beautifully. He says, we are not marginally satisfied, like steadying the rumble in our tummies, but joyously full. We see in verse 39 that Jesus sends these people away full. But it's not a fullness that's going to last forever, right? We cannot live on one meal. We need constant nourishment. Back in the Garden of Eden, we know, right, surrounded by food, the devil came to Adam and Eve, and he said, he said, take and eat. And that taking and eating was in rebellion against God because God said not to eat from the tree in which they took and eat from. It was a devastating meal. It left them emptier and more unsatisfied than they ever imagined. And what is God's response to that meal? Well, in a short while, we're going to see it in its fulfillment. As we come into Matthew 26, Jesus will tell his disciples, take and eat. At that meal, the Last Supper, Jesus has broken the bread, fully knowing that he himself must be broken to reverse the curse of our sin. 
You see, the deepest meaning of this miracle of feeding the 4,000 is not the bread and fish the people ate that day. The deepest meaning of this miracle is that Jesus became to us the bread of life. You see, the cross is the greatest miracle of all, that Jesus took our sin to a desolate place. And upon the cross, the bread of heaven was broken for us. Jesus lost the Father's compassion so that we could have it forever. Jesus lost the Father's provision so that we never would. And Jesus satisfied God's wrath to satisfy our need of forgiveness. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Friend, are you tired of chasing that next meal to fill your appetite? Are you weary? You may never find a way to satisfy that new craving. Come to Jesus. For as you come in faith to Jesus with empty hands and his great compassion, he'll turn to you and pour his life into yours. Friends, we have a king. We have a king who doesn't look at the crowd and their stench wishing someone else might do something. We have a compassionate king who rushes towards us and provides a feast in our desolate place by laying down his life that we may be eternally, abundantly, and mightily satisfied. That's our king. Be reminded of this today. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your provision made perfect by your life, death, and resurrection. Lord, it's in moments like this where we come across a a familiar theme, a familiar idea. Lord, would you put us to life and consider anew and afresh the provision that we have, the perfect provision we have through your Son. Lord, for many of us who claim Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray that in this moment, by your Spirit. Lord, would you convict us in the ways in which perhaps we chase after a meal that does not fully satisfy, and may we repent and turn in faith. For those of us here this morning who have never trusted in Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to understanding, awaken them of your compassion that can be freely theirs. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you that you're a king who not only creates us, but sustains us and provides and cares and loves for us. You indeed are great and wonderful. In your name we pray, amen.